welcome to the QAV Investing Podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. This is episode 511. This week on the show, we're going to be talking about Hamish Douglas resigning from the Magellan board, Russia spiraling towards a $210 billion default nightmare and what that means for investors in Australia, the concept of asset manager capitalism and how that impacts on investors, coppers are buy again, GRR is now a star stock. Uh, about a month after it hit our buy list, which is always nice, as Tony says. MQG is back on the buy list. Tony's excited about that. It's one of his favourite stocks. He, in fact, does a pulled pork on MQG today. Uh, We also talk about the uh, impact of rising petrol prices and the take-up of EVs. Buy now or later with stocks. Uh, How quickly Tony sells when he gets a sell alert. Are we crazy to be selling commodity stocks at all-time highs? We discussed that. IMA corporate action, understanding the right-of-use assets that you sometimes see. Uh, should we take industry sector into account and rebalance our portfolios? And we talk about the sell line for a new IPO, MAD. Uh, if you're brand new to the show, uh, this is basically where I talk with my friend Tony Kynaston. He's a very successful investor, been doing it professionally for 30 years gets an average 19.5% compound annual return which is pretty good and he does that because he has a system that he calls QAV uh, quality at value and uh, what we do on this podcast is we teach that system basically Um, and uh, there's there's a free episode and a premium episode each week for our club members but I'll talk about that more at the end of this episode so let's get into it Welcome back to QAV TK. This is episode 511. We're recording this on the 22nd of whatever month it is, March 2022. How are you? Yeah, good. Hurt your back playing golf. Well, got you hurt your back somehow. I did. Told you. Golf's not good for you, man. It's bad for your health. <laughs> you know what? I played yesterday because like to, yesterday and today are the only by Sunday, only three days in about the last month it hasn't rained or is going to rain in Sydney. So I had a back massage on Friday because I hadn't had one because I was away for a long time and I thought I should get one. And sometimes they can trigger some problems. So it was a bit sore on the weekend, a bit sore yesterday before I went, decided to go, was motivated to go because I know if I don't play yesterday, I'm not going to play for another week at least. Uh, yeah, came home with a sore back. Played with a nice Irish guy, got to the pro shop, all the way in, I'm going, oh, I don't know if I can play today. I'm a bit sore. Got to the pro shop, thought, I'll just, I'll just, maybe I'll play nine holes and see how I go. And they go, oh, we've got this guy visiting all the way from Ireland. Would you mind pairing with him? No, it's okay. So played the full 18, which was great. He was a good, really nice guy. Oh, good. Good guy. We became best friends. He was bitching and moaning that he, it cost him 65 bucks to catch a taxi from his hotel in Darling Harbour to the golf course. So I said, it's okay. I'll give you a lift home. Oh, that's just really wonderful of you, mate. I'll buy you a beer afterwards. <laughs> we had a few beers afterwards. Oh, nice. That's great. Look at you. Yeah, you should be paid by the Australian Tourism Bureau. <laughs> Did you slip him a QAV business card, Tony, and say, uh, if, you know, get into this, you won't worry about the $60 Uber fare? <laughs> I didn't, know. Okay. Well, take care of yourself because... We had a wonderful dinner in Brisbane last week. Thank you to everybody who came along. It was a great night. But one of the topics of discussion was your health, Tony. And uh, <laughs> I think it was Ed Nixon who said, 
you know, he wants to learn everything that you know and be as good as you are before, you know, something tragic happens to you. So, uh, <laughs> was it a wake or was it a dinner? <laughs> I may be putting words in Ed's mouth there, but <laughs> he did say, no, we were talking about, yeah, look, uh, I said that's my objective too. I, you know, Tony could get hit by a bus tomorrow or catch COVID or whatever. We need to learn everything that he knows before we pass off the mortal coil. You know, we need to do the transfer <laughs> of the Dharma. Yeah, well, right. But there's three years of it <laughs> transcribed, so I'm not sure what more I can do. Oh, there's always something new. And you change the rules all the time. Yeah, true. No, it's good. So thank you to everyone who came. All right, into the news. Hamish Douglas resigns from the Magellan board this week. Tony, is that a big deal? I've read various, some some news sources are going, this is uh, the end of an era. Some are saying, ah, oh, it's no big deal. He'll be back. He's just taking some time off. I don't know. Resigning from a board sound of the company that you've been running for 20-odd years sounds like a bit of a major step to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I think he'll be back myself. He's uh, been under a lot of stress, been through a divorce. So maybe in six months or 12 months, I think he'll come back. But yeah, I mean, just, I mean, the whole Magellan story, it just shows you the, well, just what we've been talking about. <laughs> One person gets sick or gets stressed and then the whole thing falls in a hole. It's key man risk, right? Yeah. And that book I finished reading in the, uh, recently about the UK, book uh, Built on Lies, which was really good. And it's the uh, same sort of story, a key man risk. He, he was really good for 20, 30 years of investing, only buying blue chip companies, avoided the GFC, avoided the dot-com bubble, all this kind of stuff. And then uh, hubris got to him and he thought he could invest in biotech startups. And then uh, that turned to liquid. And uh, that was the one thing he needed was liquidity. He didn't have it because he couldn't sell them. So he got squashed. But yeah, so similar sort of story. It's, uh, it's a shame it's happening, but um, it does happen. Well, it'll be like Warren Buffett when uh, when he passes away and when Charlie passes away. What's going to happen with Berkshire then? Do we? I mean, he's he's doing everything he can to hand it over to some of his staff, but are people really going to treat his staff the same way they've been treating him? I, I think there'll be an exit when it happens. I saw this. I lived through this in part at Microsoft when Bill Gates stepped away from the company after the government went after them, the antitrust stuff, and Bill initially stepped down as... CEO and stepped down as president and then eventually left the board as well. But, you know, it was it was very hard. Bill Gates had a certain aura about him and people listened to Bill in a different way than they listened to Steve Barmer even. And it's taken them a while, but I think they're back on track now. I think there's, the new guy has got a lot of respect and seems to be doing well. But, yeah, it's the, the, the transition of a founder like that it's difficult. When Steve Jobs died, it must have been very difficult at Apple, but um, Tim's obviously done a tremendous job in most respects. Yeah, and I think both those people recognise the fact that the company had to be set up to survive after them. So they do go through a period of, of decline, but they do, if their companies are good enough, they will bounce back and do even better. But that aura of the Buffett or the Gates or the Jobs, Rupert Murdoch, you know, these guys are yeah, they, they they carry. It's like goodwill. We were talking about last week. Yeah, right. Not tangible, untangible, intangible, intangible assets. Intangible, yeah. Well, it's no, it's exactly right because uh, there's a trust in those people that because they've done so much, seen so much that no matter what gets thrown at them, the company will come through and they'll come through. Which yeah, it takes a long time to build that up, that trust up. Yeah. So Hamish Douglas going is a is a big deal. Interestingly enough, it was kind of the 
a company called St. James's Place, which had a large stake in the Magellan Funds, when it was pulled, that was probably the end, uh, was also in the same position with this book I was reading in the UK, Built on Lies, same thing. They, they had a big stake in the fund there. And uh, when things started to turn to shit, they pulled their money out, which was the, you know, the death knell for the fund. It was St. James Place, it was the same mob? Same one, yeah. They're not shorting these organisations, are they? (laughs) Yeah, well, possibly. I doubt it, but betting against themselves. Sounds like an old Kerry Packer play. (laughs) I don't know about Kerry Packer. But, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting interesting scenario, isn't it? They could be, you know, slipping photos to Hamish Douglas's wife starting the divorce (laughs) because they've shorted the stock. But, no, that's not going on. Allegedly. (laughs) You posted a link to our Facebook group the other day about Russia spiraling towards a $210 billion default nightmare. That was a topic of big conversation at the Brisbane dinner last week. Mm-hmm. Talk us through how you understand this. Yeah, so Russia, like almost every other country in the world, has, has debt flows and they're in a bit of a jam at the moment because the debt that they've taken out, which is mainly to investment bankers and uh, in the US and perhaps even the government in the US. I'm not familiar with the exact bonds that they've been holding. But uh, as a, a rule or an obligation associated with those bonds, they have to pay the debt when it's due in US dollars. And of course, now with the sanctions that are placed on Russia, they can't do that. So they said that we'll pay it in rubles, but uh, that's a breach of the bond. So they have 30 days to come up with US dollars or they default. And you know, $210 billion default is quite large, even for Wall Street. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm following the money here. I'm guessing that uh, the big banks on Wall Street aren't going to like that, and they're going to be putting some pressure to play somewhere, perhaps on the US government, to try and get things tied up with a neat bow by the middle of April so they can get their money back. So that's one dimension of it, and that's me drawing a long bow, and I don't like predicting things, but there's certainly some pressure of money behind what's, uh, what is going on there. But the other side that that's really, I think, was probably the lesson for QAV listeners was was that the rating agencies had rated these bonds highly, you know, double A, double A plus, or even higher, all the way through. You know, safe, bet your houses, low money to Russia, no problems, they'll pay it back, guarantee, right? And you know, one hundred and forty thousand troops mass on the border with Ukraine. No, no, they're still rated solid gold. Not going to be a problem. And now they're worth, well, last time when this article was published, they're worth 20 cents in the dollar. I understand that no one can foresee what has happened with any degree of certainty, but if you're, if these guys should have been taking risk into account with their ratings, right? They should have been saying, okay, it was AAA, but now there's, there's something funny going on with the Ukraine. Let's downgrade him a bit. But they never did. Right up until the first, the first shots, they were still saying that these are solid gold rated dead instruments, and they weren't. And it was the same thing during the GFC. The ratings agencies, as soon as one of them listed, so they were all, they were all unlisted companies in the past and they were known for being independent, objective, which they had to be because they're rating debt securities, right? So they had to be independent and objective. As soon as they listed and as soon as one of them listed, I think it was Moody's went first, but who knows, the other ones had to list as well. And then they became beholden to the people that they were rating. You're, I don't know, oh, let's pick one, Citibank, and you're putting out a bond issue and you ring up Moody's and you say, hey, we're putting out this bond. What are you going to give us? A triple plus? Yeah. 
We'll go across the road, see what standard and pause will give us. And by the way, we own 5% of you guys, so let's, let's get a better deal. So it became heavily corrupted. And I even I remember after the GFC, they did a big investigation into the causes and they, they named the rating agencies as the problem. And I remember one of, the, one of their ex-employees giving testimony to say, yeah, before we listed, we used to, you know, someone would come up with a big debt, rate, a big debt issuance. We get a pizza. We stand around the boardroom for half an hour, like reading through all the small print, understanding it, and we'd rate it. Now, someone's putting out a debt instrument because we're listed and we have relationships with them. I get a phone call from the sales clerk saying it needs to be A triple plus. It's like the the salespeople were driving the company because they had to to, to keep the revenue top line growing, uh, which was good for their shareholders, and it became a big convoluted snake eating its tail type scenario. So. No, I, I don't have much respect for the for the ratings agencies, and I, to be honest, I don't think people out there should. They're conflicted. And what did you call them in the Facebook post? Oh, they're flogs. <laughs> Absolute flogs. And that is the title of this week's episode. <laughs> flogs. They're a bunch yeah. of flogs. Well, that leads me uh, directly into the next story I wanted to talk about, which was Corey Doctorow's article about asset manager capitalism. Did you have a read of that? I did, yeah. I was surprised. I mean, like Corey Doctorow, well, my knowledge of Corey Doctorow is he's a science fiction writer. He is, but he's a lot more than that, yeah. I mean, he's he's been one of the leading technology activists for decades around fighting against DRM and fighting against uh, Facebook and technology standards. He's a, a non-fiction writer as much as he is a fiction writer. Oh, okay. But I've read, I mean, I've read a number of his uh, fiction books, which I, I really enjoyed. So he wrote this article on, um, I, I subscribed to him on Medium, wrote the story the other day. We're living in an era of extremely weird capitalism. American capitalism is usually described as a system in which top managers are rewarded with stock options, which incentivizes them to maximize returns to shareholders who are so dispersed that they struggle to control companies by voting their stock. But then he talks about how we're now in the era of asset manager capitalism as a corporate governance regime, which was a a paper that came out from Max Planck Institute, author by the name of Benjamin Braun. What's asset manager capitalism? It's a market dominated by the asset managers from three giant index funds, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, along with a few other giant funds that roll up pension funds and other funds, vast family fortunes, managed funds, etc. These funds are giant. Between them, they own an average of 22% of every S&P 500 company. Every S&P 500 company. Wow. They don't just own a big stake in the whole sector, like Warren Buffett buying a big chunk of all four airlines. They own significant stakes in every industry, not just airlines, but hotels, resorts, rental car agencies, etc. But even though they have a lot of power, for many companies, an index manager is their largest shareholder, they are weak in one critical respect. An index fund can't walk away from their investment. If you're tracking the S&P 500, you've got to own the piece of nearly every S&P 500 company. Company, this is super extra weird. So it goes on to talk about, for listeners, you know, in theory, these big stakeholders can use their shareholding and their seat on the board to threaten the company to do this or that or change their practices or whatever. These guys can't sell because they're obliged to own these massive stakes in these companies. Yeah, because they're index man funds. 
Right. And also they own a, a massive stake in everything. So, like, the entire economy is sitting with these guys who can't really be activists. They just hold it. And, they, and so he talks about some of the issues with that, which I found really enlightening and interesting. I know you've talked about some of these issues in the past too about these index funds and holding large stakes of all these businesses and some of the implications of that from an investing perspective. What did you take away from Corey's article? Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I mean, again, this is like a the two-faced beast because the leaders of those three companies, BlackRock, et cetera, have come out and said they're going to start applying pressure from an ESG perspective on companies, but they don't. They, I mean, the rear window in the Fin Review every now and then has a go at them because they still vote with the companies on when there's like a shareholder activist vote about uh, climate change, for example. They'll say that they're pro for it, but when the vote comes down, they just vote with management. And because they're index funds, they own shares and gas and coal and, and oil and all those things. And tobacco, well, there's no tobacco in Australia, but there is in other parts of the world, liquor, gambling, all those kinds of things, Arm, armaments, manufacturers. So, I mean, they're just basically passive capital for companies. And it's interesting, that number you said 22%, I, I think it's a, last I saw it was about 13% in Australia. And I'm not sure if that's just the index portion of uh, ETFs, but it's probably the whole market. So there's some active people in there as well. But yeah, I, I mean... Um, there's a whole heap of issues here. On the, on the investing side, there's what happens when somebody who owns 13, 20% of the market sells. There's going to be a, a big step down in the share price. Now, if it's an index fund, it's only going to happen if it moves from the ASX 200 downwards, for example, but, but that's a big issue. But as you're saying, from the corporate government side, these people are passive. They vote with management. But it's basically giving top companies a free kick, isn't it, to enact whatever policies they want to. Because if you want to vote against management, you've got to not only have a majority, but the majority has just been well increased by twenty percent. You've got to basically get got to get a majority. If their twenty percent is voting with management, yeah, you've got to get a lot of votes to overturn something that management wants to do. If you disagree with it, and according to Corey, looking at these companies in the US, as you said, they're like they're very passive. He says between two thousand and eight to two thousand and seventeen, four thousand shareholder proposals were tracked by the Russell 3000 index, none of them came from a big three asset manager. Yeah. So they're not trying to change these companies at all. And they would argue they work behind the scenes. So they pick up the phone and say, listen, I own 20% of you, you're doing this. There's probably a lot of that going on too. So I think it's a two-way, two-way street in this circumstance, but I haven't heard much evidence of that going on. I haven't heard of any evidence of BlackRock, et cetera, influencing a company's strategy to suit BlackRock's needs at all. Heaven help us if they ever, it ever does come to transpire that a government wants to uh, turn against those big institutions. I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be fighting a lot of muscle when they're that big and have that much influence. I mean, every company CEO is going to be opposed to it, to whatever change the government wants. You know, if, a, if a government comes in and says, well, we're now going to bring in a 20% carbon tax and BlackRock says, oh, no, you're not, then you basically got every corporation in Australia and the US and UK, probably in Europe, fighting against that. Which they probably would be anyway, but still, unless they're a green energy company or somebody who stands to benefit. Yeah, but this wasn't, I mean, this, the, the point I've made in the past is this wasn't there when I first started investing, right? Sure, there were managed funds. The people who came before Magellan, you know, the Platinums, those kinds of people, Bankers Trust, they, they had 
large funds, but they were nowhere near as large as what they currently are. And with the rise of index funds, they didn't have the same rules. So if Bankers Trust didn't like what the company was doing, they'd sell the shares. Now, BlackRock can't do that if it's if it's marketing itself as an index fund to its customers. They've got to hold the shares. So it's a very different game. Apart from the fact that it's going to be, it, it promotes a status quo, so it's going to be hard to see change from a, a, an ESG side of things, a corporate governance side of things. I think it's going to also play out in any sort of market route where you see companies start to drop out of the index, they're going to fall even heavier because of that. Because all these big asset managers are going to have to sell their stakes and it's just going to be a dump. Correct. All right. Well, that's anyway, I found that uh, interesting when it crossed my path this week. Copper is a buy again, Tony. It was a sell for about five minutes. Yeah, it wasn't long, was it? <laughs> and it stuck its nose up again. It is skirting its sell line, but yeah, it is still going up and it's, it's turned up again this week. So to everybody who sold their copper stocks last week when we said <laughs> copper was a sell. Uh, yeah, you can buy them back. Yeah, you can buy them back. And look, this, is, this has been an unusual market, not just for copper, but you know, I'm going to do a pulled pork on Macquarie Group soon. And uh, that was a stock I held and sold. It's now back on the buy list about a month later. So it's, just, it's a bit of an unusual market at the moment. It's been dipping. It's been coming back. It's been going sideways. There's a lot going on outside of the market, which is affecting it. And uh, I think, you know, when when things start to clear up a bit, the market will will start to get a bit uh, firmer. But at the moment, it's it's um, shifting sand. You think things are going <laughs> to return to normal, Tony? No, well, who knows? I hope so. And, and normal for the market isn't so much that there's a lot going on in the world. It's it's how predictable is that that's going on. And so the market's getting comfortable with the fact that uh, powers in the US is saying that. Interest rates will rise and there'll be five or six rate rises this year. The market in Australia is kind of predicting there'll be rate rises here. So it's not so much that the interest rates are rising, it's the market getting to grips with being able to predict what's going to happen. Eventually, something will clarify in Europe and the war in Ukraine will end or ramp up or whatever, and the market will get comfortable with that. And with COVID and all those kinds of things, it probably already is comfortable with COVID. I think that's probably a mistake, but anyway. It's the fact that there's a lot going on and it's difficult to predict that's the problem with the market. It's not so, there's always things going on. I mean, the stock market went through the Cold War, it went through all of the Vietnam War, Korean War, blah, blah, blah. They continue to trade. It's just how predictable can they be in putting their money into the market and and getting it back with interest in the future. So it's predictability that matters. Yeah, certainty. But yeah, I was just thinking, Jenny and I were talking about this last night. It's just... We're handing over a crap world to our kids. I mean, with COVID and with um, difficulties in buying houses and interest rates rising and whatever's going to happen in Europe, all the, China, all those kinds of things. I mean, we've, we, ha- we grew up with those kinds of backdrops, but they were different. You know, the Cold War was different. Uh, Vietnam War was different, but they were there. But yeah, it's just we had a, a good run there, I feel, for a couple of, at least a decade, if not more, where um, there was a lot going on, but it doesn't seem to almost be as existential as it is now. Yeah, I'll talk about it in after hours, but I, last week I've been reading John Mearsheimer's book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, that he wrote in 2001, before 9-11, before the Iraq invasion, the Afghanistan invasion, that kind of stuff, but 10 years after the end of the Soviet Union. And, you know, this is the book where he expounded upon the theory of offensive realism, as he calls it. You know, he starts the book by saying, you know, there's a lot of people saying 
this is a new era, the end of history, as Fukuyama said, the end of the Cold War and the Soviet Union. And Bill Clinton had been saying it's going to be this nice future where everyone gets along and cooperates and rainbows and flowers and kumbaya and unicorns and all this kind of stuff. And he was saying, yeah, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. This is why it's a, a realist view of how the great powers operate. And the offensive part is because it's offense is the best form of defense. So he said, like, bottom line is the states and the great powers don't trust each other. And for good reason, they're always lying to each other. And their view of the world is only the strongest survive. And so they will always be trying to take from each other and uh, try to get on top. He quotes Immanuel Kant as basically saying the only, the, the best form of achieving perpetual peace in the eyes of most kings or nations is uh, complete hegemony. That's the only way you can have perpetual peace is if you control everything. And he's saying, yeah, that's basically how these guys, how, you know, states think. They have to. Because if you, if you close your eyes, you're worried that the other guy is going to sneak up behind you and hit you over the head with a mallet. So. It's certainly the autocratic view, isn't it? Putin controlling the media and, and uh, Xi Jinping controlling the media and all that. It's, it's hegemony. But it's the same here. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the blanket, one-sided narrative that we're getting in the West is really no different. For as far as I can tell, it's the same blanket narrative. Yep. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, yeah. And we've talked about it before. It's that red-blue thing in your brain that's been there since the start of evolution that we, our tribe good, tribe over hill bad. And people like us who go, well, you know what? We've done some bad shit. And those <laughs> other guys, yeah, they have their good points. We would yeah. be... Uh, Shut yeah. up, Gronk. <laughs> we'd be pushed into the lava pit, you know, very quickly. Yeah. A little to the left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I have a podcast. Yeah, I, I actually... <laughs> Probably the only bit of insightful journalism I read this week, I forget where I read it, but uh, someone pointed out that Angela Merkel is gone and Russia, uh, the relationship with Russia changed almost immediately after she left, or well, the relationship between the West and Russia changed, that uh, you know, the new guy who's in Germany has started building up his military again, he's uh, on the offensive with Putin, whereas Merkel just kept managing Putin. She throw him a bit of trade, then she'd put some sanctions on him when he invaded Crimea, then she'd trade with him. So she was in a dance with him, which seemed to work because she was open, you know, open to discussion and, and transacting, whereas the, the new guys just, no, walls are up. I'm going to start building up my military again. I don't care what Putin thinks. More of a hardliner. Anyway, back to investing. GRR, Tony, now a star stock? Yeah, just, uh, again, this is one of the things I've spoken about, which I, I enjoy is when we find something on our buy list and then Stock Doctor a bit later gives it a, a, a top ranking, star stock ranking, and GRR was one of those this week. So that's good. That's how it means its score goes up in our buy list as well. MQG is back on the buy list, as you mentioned, and BSL and COG. Blue Scope Steel. Yeah, I mean, the, I think things are settling down after the reporting season now. We're starting to get a lot of the figures are in Stock Doctor. There's still a couple missing, but a lot are in. And this is an example of what I was saying before, Macquarie, Bluescope and COG have all been on the buy list in the past, even in the recent past. They've gone off, they've dipped down in the first quarter of this year because everything that's going on in the world and now they're starting to come back up, which is, you know, it happens. It's kind of signs of a volatile market. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I sold out of Macquarie Group a little while ago and uh, it's now it's back on the buy list and it's a big stock. I'll probably buy back into it at some stage going forward. 
Yeah, I had it and sold it too. You've got some interesting thoughts about petrol and EVs, Tony. Yeah, so the, what struck me was, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of articles comparing our current economic environment back to the 70s when it was the last, there was the last uh, big petrol shock and the price of gasoline went up a lot because of uh, OPEC. I was in my early teens then. And I remember at the time that uh, suddenly there were this this whole flood of new Japanese cars in the neighbourhood. We went from Monaro, people driving Monaros and uh, Valiant Chargers, which were big V8 gas guzzling cars, to Datsun 180Bs and 120Ys. And uh, my first car was a Ford Escort with a four-cylinder thing. So the fact that petrol went from being reasonably freely available and reasonably cheap to being expensive meant the whole car market shifted to, to meet that change. And I think it's probably, again, not wanting to predict anything, but I think it's the, this is with oil being priced so highly, which I think is, is probably going to be longer, is a longer term thing more so than what people think. I know people are saying it's because of Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia and, and that's taken, uh, was it six or 7% out of the market? And those things are all true, but there's also a fair bit of analysis around there now saying that because of pressure on banks not to loan to oil companies because of oil companies themselves not getting access to capital, that there's a lot less exploration going on in the oil industry. So typically what happens with any of these resources is as soon as the price rises, the market gets saturated with new entrants and they, they soak up that price rise. And it, it, it's happening a little bit, it happens with the oil shale producers in the US uh, in particular. But um, you know, there's a fair bit of analysis saying it's it, the price is going to stay high going forward because people are viewing it as an area they don't want to invest in, which constrains their ability to find new fields. So anyway, so I think that this is probably around the time when electric vehicles might get a big push into the market from the big uh, car manufacturers and probably gain a fair bit more traction than they have because uh, petrol is expensive. So buy Tesla. Is that what you're saying, Tony? <laughs> I would never recommend Tesla. <laughs> They're great cars, but remember there's a difference between the product and the company or the product and the investment. Now, I, I, my personal view for what it's worth, and it's not worth much when it comes to the car industry, is that uh, just like now, the, you know, the Fords, the VWs, the Volvos, the Nissans, uh, the Toyotas of the world are still going to dominate the EV market. Tesla will have a place, probably at the premium end. It'll probably compete up against the BMWs and Mercedes-Benzes, I would expect, rather than the mass market. So from an investing perspective, how does this come into play? Well, it doesn't from an investing perspective. We don't have any car manufacturers in Australia, so we can't really invest overseas. Uh, I mean, who knows? I don't like investing in thematics. I just think it's going to be a change we'll see in society. We do have some guys here that make uh, charges for electric cars, though. There's a mob out of Brisbane that's been getting some media play recently. Can't remember their name. Tridium? Tridium. Yeah, that's it. Well, again, potentially, but they wouldn't be a QAV stock. I mean, they're a startup. They won't be producing any sort of positive cash flow anytime soon, I don't think. So no real implications for us, but just interesting by the by. Yeah. Tony's prediction corner. There you go. <laughs> Asterix, not a prediction. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't predict. Yeah. All right, that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. As I mentioned at the beginning, we have a free episode and a club episode, a premium episode that goes out each week. Club episode usually goes for about another half an hour to an hour. We do a lot of um, Q&A, listeners and club members sending questions and Tony and I discuss them and he explains how he thinks about certain things. 
Uh, if you're interested in checking out the club side of QAV, just go up to our website, register for the two-week free trial up there. It's basically where you get access to our private Facebook group. You get access to the checklist that Tony uses to figure out what to buy. You get access to our course, our Bible, um, videos, private dinners that we do, a bunch of other benefits of being a club member. You get a couple of weeks free trial to check all that out. Uh, or you can just keep listening to the free episodes. That's fine. If you're if you're not ready to do a QAV club and learn how to invest like Tony does for yourself, but you still want to invest, you, maybe you should check out QAV Lite. It's uh, where we it's a it's a service where we send out a couple of stock tips every week based on Tony's analysis. We do our buy list. We pick a couple, uh, a small cap and a large cap, and uh, we we tell you what to buy and. Uh, we also uh, will tell you when to sell them, which is important, based on the sell triggers that we have in QAV. So we run a portfolio, the QAV Lite portfolio, where we buy and sell the same stocks, and uh, you can play along with your own money if you want. Take advantage of the QAV system without having to learn how to do it for yourself. I recommend learning how to do it by yourself, because... As we talked about on the podcast, Tony could get hit by a bus and then where does that leave us? But uh, if it's just not the right time for you to do that and you want to be investing in the interim, uh, check it out. Go to qavpodcast.com.au slash light for that. Uh, I think that's it. That's all I got for this week. Stay safe and good luck with your investing. The QAV podcast is a production of Space. Craft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.